Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your word. And we pray, Lord, that as it is now proclaimed, as it is heralded and treated like news, Lord, I pray that we would receive it attentively and with glad hearts. Would your spirit do that in us, Lord, that you would provide faith for us when we hear your promises and repentance. And we pray that you would be glorified and that all the glory would go to you, Father, Son, and Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. If you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, and we're going to begin at verse 5. Galatians 3, 5, and we'll read all the way to verse 18. Galatians 3, verse 5. Does he who supply the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring who's Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Thus far, the word of the Lord. Last week, we uh, heard Paul tell the Galatian churches that They had not stumbled upon a new teaching that enhanced the gospel that they had believed in and which saved them, but that they had actually been foolish and had been bewitched by a false gospel, which is no good news at all. In fact, good news is actually what gospel means, good news. But it's actually bad news and which a person would have to reject the real true gospel Uh, reject the true gospel if you're going to adopt this bad news gospel that they thought they were adding. They were teaching that somebody's justification before God was by trusting in Jesus and 
works that you do or something about you. Something about you. And justification, it really is the biggest question. It is the one that matters the absolute most. And it is asking this question, are you righteous and right in the eyes of the Lord or do you stand before him guilty and condemned? That's what justification is getting at. Do you stand before the Lord righteous and right or do you stand before him guilty and condemned? That's what justification means. Paul's already said that anybody preaching this adjustment to the gospel, anybody coming preaching an adjustment to the gospel, saying, no, 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 we also have to consider our works or something about us uh, when we comes to uh, our standing with God. Paul says anybody preaching such an adjustment to the gospel is to be treated as a man who's going to hell. That's how you're supposed to treat that man. You're supposed to treat him as if he is going to hell. We already read in Galatians, let him be accursed. Paul says, assume that guy's going to hell and taking others with him until and unless he repents and instead trusts in the work of Christ alone. He doesn't really relent, does he? Paul just keeps going. His foot is still on the gas in this, as we continue this chapter. So last week we saw Paul's argument was that this is not really a mistake based on the finer details of the, of the Bible. This is not in some obscure verse in Leviticus that they, oh, this is the only way you would have known it. If you had read this little piece of the Bible, you'd known this mistake. He's saying, no. We, we looked at the example that if it was engineering, this wasn't a mistake of a complicated physics formula. This is the kind of mistake that grade two kids could have caught and solved. It was destroyed by a simple, even the simplest understanding that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead for our justification. And so Paul gives a number of grade two level arguments to destroy that false teaching, which sounded so attractive, but it actually took the church's eyes off of where they belonged on the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we saw some of these arguments last time. When the Gentiles, people who had no knowledge of the Lord and had not kept his laws, didn't belong to the the, the lineage of Abraham, when the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit, Paul asks, had they kept the law for a while before they received the gift of the Holy Spirit, living them, making them alive? Of course not. Okay. Those who have the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, are justified before God, and those people are the people who have faith in Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Now, today Paul brings in the big guns. He brings in Abraham, Father Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. Now, the Judaizers, these people who are teaching that, yes, you have faith in Christ, very good, very important, but also things about you count as well when you're standing in your standing before God. They're saying, in order to truly belong to God, you'd have to be a son of Abraham. So, they're, so essentially they're saying, this is not by faith alone, but by the flesh as well. Something about you. Being physically descended from Abraham. Or perhaps obeying as he obeyed. Or being circumcised as he was. 
All of these things were basically taking a look about something about you that gives you confidence that God would accept you and keep promises to you. You'd appeal to these things when doubting if God would hear you or if he would keep you or if he would forgive you or bring you into his kingdom as a full heir. These Judaizers were saying, if you're ever doubting that, think, oh, I'm descended from Abraham. Oh yeah, God will keep his promises to me. Oh, I've obeyed as Abraham obeyed. Yes, God will keep his promises to me. And Paul says this is deadly, but it's also foolish. He essentially says, you guys just weren't paying attention in kids' Sunday school, let alone adult Sunday school. We have to return to the story of Father Abraham. Let's just go over it simply, and just a simple reading of it will show you that you are dead wrong. So that brings us to our first point, or Paul's first point in the passage we're addressing, and that is this, faith in the gospel and the Holy Spirit mark the heirs of God's promises. And we'll return to verses 5 to 8 to to grab these things. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Though, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Thus far the word. So the false teachers would say, yes, yes, faith in the gospel is good. And it, actually, it's necessary. They're agreeing it's necessary. One thing you need to do to be saved, one of the things you need to do to be saved, is call Jesus the Messiah and believe that he rose from the dead. But if you want what Abraham has, you have to do what Abraham did. If you want the promises that God swore to Abraham, then you're going to have to do what he did to join his family, to join his people. Abraham, as we've already noted, Abraham was the father of the people of Israel. He was called by God to leave his family, his land, and to go where God would send him. And he was promised he would inherit the land of Canaan. He was promised that God would make him a great nation and that all those who blessed his people would be blessed by God and all those who cursed his people would be cursed by God. Abraham was promised that even in his old age and his wife's old age, they would conceive a son. He, <coughs> pardon me. He was promised that God's blessing would come to all people or people of all nations, through his offspring. This is lovely promises that God makes to Abraham. And Abraham believed God. And, as we read, it was credited to him as righteousness. His faith made him justified. God justi justified him by his faith. And so Paul is saying to the false teachers, you're right, you do have to inherit the way that Abraham inherited. You do have to be justified in God's sight the way that Abraham was justified in God's sight. And the false teachers say, finally, Paul, you're coming around. And then Paul says, but you're wrong. 
about how Abraham was saved and about how he stands as an heir to the promises and blessings of God. This is a grade two kind of, uh, a kind of lesson. A grade two kid could read that story and answer the question. How did Abraham become justified, forgiven, and accepted by God? Well, let's just see here. It says by faith. Faith in the gospel promise of God. And so Paul is saying to the Galatians, they already had the same relationship with God that Abraham did. They had heard the gospel of Christ, that he died for sinners and he was raised for our justification. And they believed. They heard and believed. They entrusted themselves to the promises of God. See, faith in scripture has the sense of, yes, knowing the facts of the gospel, knowing the promises, and then agreeing with the promises, but then also trusting the promises. Hold on, you might say. How can you say that Abraham and the Galatians trusted in the same gospel, Derek? Well, first of all, you're going to have to take it up with Paul. It's what he says. He says that the Galatians and Paul and, and, and uh, Abraham trusted in the same gospel. And so the gospel, very simply, is that you, Abraham and his offspring, through them, through, through his offspring, God would bless the nations. And what would blessing mean other than justification and the Holy Spirit of God in making you new, alive, and adopted children of God? He, would, he believed and it was counted to him as righteous. And then Paul says, look, the promise is that the nations we blessed along with him, meaning in the same way, they too would be justified by faith. Right standing before God, acceptance into his kingdom as sons and daughters. Now, if you're familiar with Old Testament history, and Paul reminds us, it wasn't until 430 years later that Moses came and we got the law, and the nation of Israel was formed as an actual nation. So he's saying, you're not remembering this properly. This should be clear. So Abraham and the Galatians, before the false teachers came to confuse them, Abraham and the Galatians, they believed the same gospel. God justifies people of all nations by Abraham's offspring. Abraham's offspring, I should say, by Abraham's heir. And that justification is received by faith. And the Holy Spirit is the deliverer of that gift. It's not by works. It's not by circumcision. Not by keeping kosher. Not by being genetically related to Abraham. Not by being faithful to your wife. Not by loving God not by loving your neighbor, but by faith. Now, of course, as redemptive Bible history goes on, more and more details are added to those gospel promises, not changing that gospel, but lifting and pulling away the veil so we can see more and more and more details of that beautiful, beautiful gospel. We now know what the name of Abraham's offspring is the one through whom salvation would come to all nations. His name is Jesus Christ, descended from Abraham according to the flesh. 
So if you want what Abraham has from God, says Paul, you need Abraham's faith. Not his flesh, not his obedience, but faith in the same gospel. Dear brothers and sisters, this means that there is no need to add to your faith in Christ to better your standing before God. It was sufficient to save Abraham to trust in the gospel. It really is sufficient. If you stand before God, if your plan to stand before God in judgment at your death, each of you is going to die. And you need a plan as to how you're going to stand before God in judgment. If your plan is to stand with only Christ's achievements and none of your own, it's a good plan. It was God's plan. It was the plan that Abraham stood before God with, and God declared him righteous. And he was received by God as a forgiven heir. It really is a lovely confidence to consider whether Christ's righteousness was good enough, rather than to consider whether yours is good enough. Because that one has a very clear answer, and it's a very good answer. Jesus was perfect. This was demonstrated before he died. He lived a perfect life in front of many, many, many witnesses. Even his enemies at his trial before his death could not come up with a coherent, believable argument that the man had sinned. His enemies, which had much to gain by showing one time that he sinned, they were unable to come up with that. And he was ultimately proven by God to be perfect when God raised him from the dead. So dear brothers and sisters, when you doubt whether faith in Christ is sufficient to provide for you a welcome in the arms of God, just consider and dwell on God's acceptance of Christ. That is yours if your faith is in Christ. What did God the Father say of Christ? So Christian, this is what your acceptance and affection from God are based on. And it is sufficient. It is more than sufficient. You will never get to the end of how valuable that is. You will never be finished unpacking all the blessings that Christ earned for you in the new heavens and earth. It takes us to our second point. We've seen already that it is sufficient to trust in Christ and that his righteousness is sufficient for you. Next question, next, next point is this. Asking God to consider anything other than faith in the gospel is asking him to send you to hell. Asking God to consider anything other than faith in the gospel is asking him to send you to hell. Oh, you might say, I'm not saying Christ's work isn't good enough. No, 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 no. I'm, I, I agree that Christ's work is sufficient to get me into, you know, to get me forgiven. But I'm hoping to get even more accepted by God. I'm hoping to have even more of an inheritance, to have a more secure salvation. 
wouldn't it be better if, to have faith in Christ and to have my own record count? If I hand in two resumes to God, isn't that better when I, if I hand in two resumes to God, Christ's, which is mine by faith, and my own, Christ's resume? Well, let's see what Paul has to say about that in, in verses 10 through 14. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified by God before the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Thus far, the word. So if you're handing in your resume to God to establish that you deserve something good from him, whether that's forgiveness or fatherly love or eternal life or answered prayers or inheritance in the new heavens and earth, you are exposing yourself to the fires of hell. That's what you're doing. Paul will elsewhere include trusting or adding your resume, something like who your father was, the things you have done, the the things you've not done, your ethnicity. If anything about you is part of your resume that you're asking God to consider, you are asking God to send you to hell. No, I'm not. Yes, you are, says Paul. He uses another grade two level argument. He takes them right back to the Old Testament, to the law of God. Right back to the law of God that included circumcision and food laws as well as laws forbidding murder and theft and adultery. Just read it, says Paul. Let's read this. And he takes them to the Old Testament. What does this law that you're counting on, what does this law that tells you what pleases the Lord, what does this law, what does it tell you about a person who has not obeyed it perfectly? This law, which includes the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind, what does it say will be the fate of a person who desires to stand before the Lord based on the law? Cursed. Like seven years of bad luck, cursed? No. Cursed by God. Damned. Condemned. Cast out and rejected. Punished. The wrath of God, hell. This is what the law itself says about the one who would stand before God on account of their record according to the law, if their record had one flaw in it. But then how is anyone saved? If the law of God in the Old Testament says very clearly the one who breaks the law in any which way will be condemned, Does that mean no one was saved? I'm glad you asked, says Paul. Let's go again to the Old Testament and let's go to Habakkuk. I think it's Habakkuk, Caleb. Habakkuk 2, what is Paul? The righteous shall live by faith, by trusting in God's promise. Yes, God gave the law to Israel. 
Yes, it was good, and yes, God commanded Israel to obey that law, but they were told immediately, immediately that trusting in their obedience would mean damnation to them. They would live, they would have eternal life by faith. Dear friends, each human is created in the image of God. Each human is an image bearer of God. That means we were created to represent God on the earth. That means that like it or not, everything that we think, everything that we say, everything that we do is proclaiming something about God. Whether we like it or not, every time you do something, you're saying, God is like what I'm doing right now. Each time you do something, you're saying, God likes what I'm doing right now. That's what it means, in a sense, to be God's image bearer. The things that you do, you are proclaiming things about God. And so you cannot help but to say either true things or false things about God. This includes your heart, this includes your thoughts, it includes your actions and your words. And God says that the wages of sin is death and the curse and wrath of God. That means God has wrath for all sin against his law because it is cosmic treason. That means every single sin will receive the wrath of God. Every single time the law of God is broken by anyone, God promises that hell will visit that person. Cursed, eternal, the wrath of God and eternal damnation will be the result of that sin. Then how can anyone be saved? Paul says that's why Jesus came. He came to save you from what the law says about you. He didn't come to say, oh, God doesn't, does, God doesn't demand obedience to the law. He didn't come to say, oh, God doesn't punish and God doesn't curse. No, it says that Jesus took the sins of his people and their curse upon himself. If you're ever wondering, what would it look like? Ah, just, just, just imagine this. With my record, what would a guy like me, how would, how would that look if I stood before God with my record? If you're ever wondering that, open the Bible, turn to the Gospels, and read the crucifixion. That, my friends, is just a taste of how it would go for you. Because on the cross, the sins and damnation and curse and hell for every single person who would ever trust in Christ was placed on Christ. That is why he was crying out in agony. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he became a curse for you and I. That tells us what it would look like to stand before God based on obedience slash disobedience to the law of God. Everybody who was witnessing that crucifixion knew, even the pagan Romans knew that there was divine condemnation happening. No one doubted that. The earth shook. The sun refused to shine. The pagans were terrified. 
the Jews were terrified. Every single person was convinced that this man was being damned by God. God did not leave that to the imagination. The one question did remain, though. Was this man being damned for his own sin against the law of God? Or was he being damned for other people's sin, like he said he was? And the answer came very clearly on the third day when God raised him from the dead. Oh, it wasn't for his sin. It was for your sin that he had died. I fear that there are some here today. I'm convinced that there are some here today who are very glad that they, and and they agree, and they, they believe that Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead. People who believe that you will go to hell if you do not believe this is true but who are treating this as just one of the things on their resume and that they stand before God with. I've also kept the law as best I could. I come from a long line of pastors, a long line of Christians. I've always been generous, given much to the churches I've been part of. Dear friends, if this is you, Paul pulls no punches. If you are asking God to consider anything other than faith in the gospel for his affection and his acceptance of you. You are bringing the law into the equation and that is to ask God to damn you to hell. Recall the words which Brother Caleb read for us from Habakkuk 2.4. The portion right before where it says the righteous shall live by faith. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by faith. I've been a pastor long enough to know that to have seen people, members of of the church for decades and decades, seemingly to be Christians, who would certainly confess that Jesus died and rose, but who consistently pointed to their own credentials their own achievements and guarded their own positions in order to be embraced into the household of God and in the presence of God. Some have gone to their graves confessing faith in Christ and their own works. Dear friends, do not let this be you. It is not enough to confess that faith in Christ is sufficient to stand before God. You must believe, you must confess that it is your only plea. If your faith, if your confidence before God for justification is not only in Christ, then it is not at all in Christ. You must not be a fool to think that your own record of law-keeping helps in any way. Those are the last words of a man or woman heading into the fires of hell while confident they'll be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven rejoicing. No, I didn't, I didn't just make it to the cheap, sheet, the, the cheap sheets, the, the cheap seats. I made it to the place where heaven's glad, where heaven's lucky to have somebody like me. 
Paul says with tears that those seats, the seats of people who don't want a seat in heaven fully achieved by Christ, are actually seats in hell. So I fear also that there are some here who believe that Christ's death and resurrection from the dead saves sinners, but who also wonder if perhaps their sin is too great and they will face the wrath of God, the curse of God. That when God pours the cup of wrath for their sins out on them, what comes out will crush them. Dear brother, dear sister, let me ask you only this. Was Christ cursed and damned on the cross? Yes. And was it for his own sin or was it for yours? It was for yours. So dear sister, you know that it was not for his own sin. For he had none. It was for yours. And he confesses that he drank the cup of wrath dry for his people. And so if God were to pour that cup out, tip it out on you, hallelujah, it is empty. So there is no condemnation for you, but only great affection. The affection as of the father to his dearly beloved and only begotten son. That brings us to our third and final point. Jesus Christ is the only heir who has a human right to the promises of God. He is the only heir who has a human right to the promises of God. Yes, the Judaizers might say, but to be an heir by flesh is better in some way. It must count for something than to be an heir by faith alone. Wouldn't it be better Clearly, it's better to be an offspring of Abraham and trust in Christ than to simply be saved by trusting in Christ, they would say. Again, Paul tells them that they're not even reading the Old Testament carefully and paying attention to the obvious things. Let's read 15 to 18. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Thus far God's word. Paul makes it very clear that when all is said and done, there is only one heir, one heir who has a human right to the promises of God. No one can claim that they have a right to the promises of God by anything other than faith in the promises of God other than the offspring of Abraham. Yes, exactly, the offsprings of Abraham, they say to Paul. Paul says, no, you didn't even notice that promise was made to a singular offspring. Paul is saying this, not everyone who can trace their ancestry back to Abraham, but only a single 
offspring who can trace his ancestry back to Abraham. The Lord Jesus Christ. Descended from Abraham according to the flesh. You can read his genealogy in the Gospels, in Matthew and Luke. He is the heir to Abraham's promises. The one to whom they would come. And the one from whom they would go to all those who believed in the promises. This wasn't to every Israelite. This was to this Israelite, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see here that being an offspring of Abraham, according to the flesh, is not enough to actually be an heir of Abraham. There are many offsprings according to the flesh, but only one heir, only one who could claim promises by anything other than faith. So an offspring, not all offspring, but an offspring of Abraham would have to inherit the promises of God on behalf of all who trust in the gospel promises of God. So then, if it's only one who ultimately that promise is then received by and can can claim it, then why is it that there's lots of people who receive it? Because those who have faith in the gospel are united to Christ. We are one with him, our head. He is our head and we are his body, Ephesians chapter 1. He inherits all the promises. And the only way to inherit those is to be united with him by faith in him. There's no other way. There's no other way to be an heir other than to be Christ himself. Perfectly obedient to the law. Now this is what we call federal headship or covenant headship. And, and marriage is actually uh, was created to be a living parable of that. Two becoming one. Husband and wife. One flesh. Christ the husband, the church, or his covenant people, the body. And so whatever inheritance belongs to the head, the heir, singular, is also the inheritance of the body. So dear brothers and sisters, there really are only two ways to lay claim to blessings and inheritance and promises and affection of God. There's really only two ways. The first is to consider your own resume, your lineage, your ethnicity, your parents, your schooling, your achievements, your holiness, your obedience, your sincerity, your love for God, your love for neighbor, your kindness, your submission to God, your surrender to God, your knowledge of his word, the warm feelings that you say you feel when you listen to Christian music, even your knowledge and agreement with the gospel, or even agreeing with good theology. Paul summarizes all those and more in this package as the flesh or the law. And he's very clear that if there's any breaking in any way of God's law, then this package's reward is damnation. The second way to lay hold of the blessings and inheritance and promises of God, the second way is to consider Christ's claims to the blessings and promises made to Abraham. Not whether you are descended from Abraham, but whether Christ was. Not whether you were circumcised, but whether Christ was. Not whether your sacrifice was good enough, but whether Christ's was. Not whether you loved God enough, but whether Christ did. 
Not whether you loved your neighbors good enough, but whether Christ did. Not whether you are an Israelite, but whether Christ was. Not whether you have kept the law, but whether Christ has. There is no mixture of these two methods. You cannot put confidence or plea based on both. It is one or the other. So dear friends, it is not enough to have the cross of Christ as your plea. It must be your only plea. Christ is the only natural heir. The only other positions available are those by adoption, by grace, by being added to his body, to the body of the heir, by faith. And wouldn't you know it, the inheritance that the head gets is also received by the foot or the armpit or whatever body part you think you are in the church. There is no, this is no less honorable, it's no less dignified, no less joy and rest and delight. Dear friends, there are many seats at the table of the household of God, but they are all reserved for those who have Christ's credentials and only Christ's credentials. And we are fools for thinking there is a place better at the table of the family of God than the one Christ deserves. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, um, we recognize that you are wise and that you see problems and cracks in our faith and in our confidence in Christ that we either don't see that are there or that we will soon face. And so we are grateful that you have brought us this word again and that you through Paul did not relent in giving more and more simple explanations as to why it is foolish to trust in anything other than Christ's credentials for salvation. Father, for the legalist here, I pray that you would make that man or woman realize that they are condemned. Condemned by the things they think justify them. So that they would run to Christ and receive by grace through faith what he deserves with confidence that he took our condemnation on the cross. And Father, for the, the person who is worried, is convinced that their works aren't good enough and worried that Christ's death might not be sufficient, oh Lord, would you open their eyes to see how perfect and righteous and glorious Christ is and how he truly did drain the cup of your wrath dry for those who belong to him. And so there is no condemnation, not because there was no condemnation, but because Christ already received it. And Lord, would you fix our eyes on receiving the reward for Christ's suffering? Lord, would you give us more and more a glimpse from your word and soften our hearts to see what riches and glory and splendor and love and affection and delight and rest Christ has earned for those who trust in him. Lord, I pray that you would do this for your glory and for your church's joy. I pray this in Jesus' name.